0: Hello, I'm Naka Kondo from Economist Impact at The Economist Group. Welcome to this Back to Blue podcast, part of an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation to catalyze progress towards a zero-pollution ocean. Today's topic is ocean acidification. At the end of 2022, at COP15 held in Montreal, nations adopted a landmark framework on biodiversity, which includes minimizing the impact of ocean acidification on biodiversity. Back to Blue recently hosted an event focused on ocean acidification in Tokyo, with two panel discussions looking at the global and local issues of ocean acidification. The event also doubled up as a premiere of a short documentary on ocean acidification, The Threat Bubbling Up, created by The Economist Films. The film is now available on our Back to Blue website and on YouTube. Today, we would like to share with you some of the highlights from the first global panel discussion looking at the key issues in the state of science surrounding ocean acidification. The session opened with a presentation on ocean acidification by Steve Whittakam, Director of Science at the Plymouth Marine Laboratory in the UK, a world authority on marine ecology.
1: Thank you very much. It's a real honour to be here and be able to talk to you today. I'm Director of Science at the Plymouth Marine Laboratory in the UK. I've been working on ocean acidification for around 20 years now as a research scientist, primarily exploring the impacts of high levels of carbon dioxide on marine organisms. I'm also co-chair of the Global Ocean Acidification Observing Network, which is a network of nearly 1,000 researchers from around the world, from over 100 countries, who have a shared ambition to understand and observe the impacts of ocean acidification. And as was mentioned, I was a key focal point for the Ocean Acidification a research for sustainability program, which is a United Nations Ocean Decade program on ocean acidification. It's part of this three-pronged attack of climate change on our oceans. We're all aware of the issues associated with warming. The carbon dioxide we put into the atmosphere creates a blanket around this planet, warming up the atmosphere and effectively warming up the oceans. In fact, 90% of the heat that's been generated by this blanket has ended up in the ocean. But it's not just the heat that's going into the ocean, it's also the carbon dioxide itself. And as carbon dioxide reacts with the seawater, it drives a chemical reaction whereby it, it creates hydrogen ions. And these hydrogen ions are the elements which create marine acidity. In addition to warming and ocean acidification, we also have deoxygenation. As the water warms, it's less able to hold dissolved gases, meaning that the critical oxygen that the organisms need in the ocean is disappearing. So with warming, deoxygenation and ocean acidification, there's a huge threat to the health and well-being of our oceans. Well, that's the theory. Is it actually happening? Can we see it happening? And at a global level, yes we can. There are multiple observing sites around the planet which have now been operating for a long enough period of time that we can see the process of ocean acidification. We can see the chemical changes happening from those samples. By using satellite observations of our oceans, we can also see that ocean acidification process in action. So we now see from these data that our open oceans are 40% more acidic than they were before the start of the Industrial Revolution. Now that equates to a relatively small change in the pH level, but a very large change in the effective acidity in the environment that organisms are facing. But it's worse near the coasts. What we see as we get closer to the coast is that a host of coastal processes, such as the inputs from rivers, wastewater release, interactions with the seafloor exacerbate, make the ocean acidification process worse. Considering that the coastal zone is where we humans have the greatest interaction and dependence on the marine system, these are worrying data, indeed. But what do these chemical changes actually mean for us and for the marine environment? Carbon dioxide is a natural part of all biological systems. We have evolved to have CO2 as part of the natural system. Even ourselves, as humans, you know, we are triggered to breathe by the levels of carbon dioxide, not by the levels of oxygen. It's the same in the ocean. Organisms have evolved to integrate carbon dioxide and pH as part of their natural processes. So as those things change and change rapidly, it's not surprising that the physiology and the behavior of organisms change with them. High levels of hydrogen ions create corrosive conditions for all organisms that rely on a calcium carbonate shell, be that corals or shellfish, crustacea. So as ocean acidification advances, organisms that rely on those, those structures are going to find it difficult to survive. But it's not just animals that rely on calcium carbonate. We know that living in a high CO2 world puts an energetic cost on all organisms because the physiological demands of living in a high CO2 world are much greater. And if an organism is spending more energy dealing with a highly stressful CO2-rich environment, it has less energy available for growth, for reproduction. So we're seeing populations declining and organisms getting smaller. So we need to stop. We need to slow down and stop the main drivers behind the problem, which is reducing the carbon dioxide emissions going into the atmosphere. Things like renewable energies, zero carbon energies. We saw how carbon dioxide was being captured from the atmosphere, but that's all well and good unless if we put it somewhere safe. And putting it somewhere safe requires geological carbon capture and storage. Halt carbon producing land management practices and reduce the carbon involved in other industrial processes. But once we've stopped the advance of CO2 emissions, we really need to start backing away from this impending car crash, as I call it. Marine acidity is one of the nine large planetary boundaries that we are rapidly advancing towards. And if we don't want to cross through that planetary boundary, we need to find ways to back away. So we've talked about reforestation, better land use to capture carbon. We've talked about blue carbon and also carbon dioxide capture technology from air and water, as well as emerging technologies in natural carbon dioxide removal. But inevitably there will be places where we cannot do enough to stop the impact. So it's essential that we provide the ecosystems and those parts of the world and the human societies who depend on those ecosystems with the protection they need to be resilient to those changes as best as they possibly can. Use climate smart marine management and protection to better place marine protected areas, enhance biological adaptation, and also address those social economic vulnerabilities to allow people the space and the capability to ride out this ocean acidification storm. And things happening in one place can have consequences many miles away or many years into the future. So when we start to talk about solutions to climate change, we must make sure that those solutions are based on scientific evidence to ensure that what we do and how we act is based on understanding the risks not only of taking those actions but also compared to the risks of not taking any action. Ocean action, as Peter often says, is climate action and how right that is, and we all have a role to play. The Ocean Acidification Research for Sustainability Programme is not a program just for scientists. It's a 10-year vision that sets out the actions that all of us need to take, scientists, policymakers, industry, the general public, in order to address this growing and real threat of ocean acidification. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Steve, very much for that very clear presentation. Steve, I just wanted to start, if I could, looking at a couple of the questions that were raised in your presentation. One of those questions is around the coastal impacts of ocean acidification and the fact that perhaps we haven't been looking in the right places at the right things because we haven't in fact, in many ways, uncovered the state of ocean acidification in coastal areas very well. Why is that, do you think?
1: I think it's largely due to the fact that the carbonate chemistry dynamics in coastal areas is quite complicated. It's not just a result of carbon dioxide absorption from the atmosphere. There are a number of other confounding factors. Bi- microbial biological activities in the water and in the sediment, changes the carbonate chemistry, as does the influence of large rivers and estuaries, which means that it's quite a a messy picture. It's been far easier for biological oceanographers and chemical oceanographers to go out to see where the picture is much clearer and take the measurements out there in the open ocean. And the other part of the story that we've really yet to address properly is how are the consequences of the chemical changes manifesting themselves in terms of biological impact in coastal areas? We've run many experiments on marine organisms in the laboratory and seen huge effects in almost every organism we've looked at. But seeing that signal in the ocean is much more difficult because it takes a long time of persistent sustained observations for that signal to emerge. And I think if ocean acidification has told us anything, it's the value of investing in sustained observations over decades only becomes clear when we have an issue like ocean acidification.
2: What about potential tipping points as a result of ocean acidification? Are we then led to concern ourselves that there could be real tipping points where ocean acidification unbalances the ecosystems of the ocean in such a way that there is a crisis in the ocean? Is that a conceivable scenario to you?
1: I think there are multiple tipping points out there, and often your tipping point depends on your personal perspective and reliance on what it is. We saw in Washington State in the US that a tipping point came for the aquaculture farmers who are dependent on the oyster spat point at which ocean acidification got too great for them to harvest the spat and maintain their industry was a tipping point for them. Mm. The ecosystem continued, but it was not in a situation or a state that suited the corals. Seb talked about the idea that there will come a time where the physical infrastructure of those coral reefs will be dissolved to such an extent that those reefs will then collapse. So there will be multiple tipping points across all ecosystems, and I think the take-home message is that we still don't know where those tipping points will be. We don't know how fast we are moving towards them. And only through more investment in sustained observations and really appreciating what's happening in our oceans will we be able to start to make those predictions about where they're going to happen and when they're going to happen.
2: What is your sort of visceral reaction to what Steve has been saying. I mean, it's been a fascinating dialogue.
3: Look, I think the first thing I'd say, um, before I answer your question, is just to applaud the good work that's been done in ocean acidification around the world, particularly the Nippon Foundation, uh, with Sasakawa-san being here, but also you mentioned the go work, which has been done around the globe. I think of Ocean Acidification Alliance, uh, again, a very worthy organisation. And having said that, there's no doubt that we're not doing enough and that the problem is misunderstood and is underestimated in its seriousness in an existential sense for all of us. The question I ask myself is, why aren't we taking it more seriously? I have a responsibility for leading the global charge on SDG 14, 10 targets. I would say the orphan child in the SDG 14 is SDG 14.3 which we specifically put in there for ocean acidification. You're just not seeing the same level of global interest in that as you would in, say, marine pollution or fisheries subsidies or, uh, or legal fishing and so on. So why is that? I think you know what you don't see doesn't uh, grab your imagination in the same way. It's like climate change and biodiversity loss. We have just instituted the global biodiversity framework in Montreal and COP15, probably the most important thing we have done for our grandchildren, and yet it hasn't gripped the global imagination. Maybe Christmas got in the way, but what I'm saying to you is that biodiversity, it, it just people just don't quite understand that. They understand climate change because they can see the floods and the fires and the storms that are now hitting us. But biodiversity loss, is even more pernicious than that. No life on the planet, if we allow it to continue on its current track. I mean, The whole purpose, the, the target in the global biodiversity framework of 30 by 30 is to stop the cascade which will start happening in seven years' time, if we don't uh, take it more seriously. I must also apologize for my voice. I do not have COVID. <laughs> 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 Tested yesterday. I came back from Davos uh, with a very bad cold. And, and Peter, was this raised at Davos, Ocean Certification? You know, for me, it was the elephant in the room in Davos. Everybody was talking about climate change, but there wasn't enough mention about the global biodiversity framework. I was sitting on a panel there with my friend, the former CEO of World Wildlife Fund. I said to Marco, you have a very... Strong logo, WWF, a panda. Everybody loves it. They love it. They throw money at you. Uh, For them, you know if the panda survives, we survive. My logo is so small you can't see it. It's called Prochlorococcus, and nobody knew what it was, so I had to explain what it was. It's the tiniest photosynthetic organism that we have on the planet. Of course, it lives in the ocean. But the question I put to the audience was, if the panda becomes extinct, You'll be sad, but will it be the end of you? No. My logo, Prochlorococcus, if it dies, it'll be curtains for you because Prochlorococcus produces 20% of the oxygen in the biosphere. Tiny creature. Everything is connected, is my point. And I was so glad to see the film's reference to the fact that it's the micro life which keeps everything else afloat. like
2: if I can come to you, because. I think one of the really difficult questions that faces us is how do we tell the right stories around ocean acidification that gets everybody in this room, the media at the back, and everybody else excited and interested and concerned about it?
4: Absolutely. And I think very often when we talk about ocean acidification or climate change, the first image that pops in our head is of a panda or a tiger or a shark And I think that is the problem as well. As a wildlife filmmaker, it almost seems counterintuitive for me to be talking about this. But I think there's this huge mismatch where the average person or even the average policymaker doesn't see subjects like ocean acidification as something that is critical to action right now. And I think it's very important for us as the media, as storytellers, to go out there and make that inextricable link between the economy and environmental health lucid. Because when people can see that when we protect our oceans, we're actually protecting fisheries as well. That's when it makes business sense to go out there and, you know, put in the dollars, put in the yen, put in the rupees, and actually back the projects that can have and can aid the green transition. So with my company, one of our goals is to make sure that we're actually reaching out to people in a way that speaks to their specific goals. So if you're a politician, this makes sense. Climate action is part of your agenda as well. If you're someone who has an engineering company, a construction company, and I think it's just about connecting people's individual goals and institutions' individual goals with the broader goals of combating acidification and climate change.
2: So it's really connecting people to what the actual impacts of climate change are, them in some ways and obviously that ranges across the policymakers all the way across to fishermen. Do you have any nice examples of how those connections can be made and how we would make them more effectively?
4: Absolutely. So right now my team and I are working on a documentary that's supported by National Geographic Society and it is about the impact of industrial pollution on communities across the world. So we're looking at fast fashion power and plastic and how that's impacting our oceans and our land and our air. And initially, when we started to think about this, we thought about who are the scientists that we can get on board? Who are the policymakers that we can interview? How do we go and get those beautiful visuals? And then we kind of stepped back a bit and said, actually, who's most impacted by this crisis? It is communities on the front lines. And I strongly believe that we need to have those communities center stage in mainstream television programming. So the direction that we've now gone with is having four community members from Colombia, India, Bangladesh, and the United States talking about how big industrial pollution impacts their lives. So I think reaching out to people in ways that are immersive is important, but also choosing who tells those stories is so important. If we have the same voices in the room at all of the biggest climate summits talking about ocean acidification and climate change, but we don't have the people who truly experience it on a day-to-day basis, we're not gonna be able to change things at the rate that we need to right now.
2: So Steve, I wonder if you could just pick up on that because in a way we're all storytellers here on this stage, aren't we? We're all trying to get a message across about a very, very important and sometimes quite difficult issue to engage more widely on. One of the goals of OARS is to try to improve literacy around ocean acidification. What do you think are the most important aspects of helping that forward and accelerating that process?
1: Pick up on the point that the panelists said that ocean acidification is this invisible threat. You know, we don't see it. If you go to the beach and you see a pipe pumping out sewage into the ocean, you're appalled. Or you see plastics flowing down the river going out to sea. You get angry about it. But we don't see the carbon dioxide we are pumping into the sea Mm -hmm. every year. Because it's invisible. We don't see it. It's a pollutant. Just like sewage, just like plastics, it's polluting our oceans. But we don't see it. Now, the Ocean Acidification Research for Sustainability Programme recognizes seven outcomes. What we are striving to deliver by the end of the ocean decade, so in seven years' time, is we want to create a world where we have delivered against seven high-level outcomes. We want a world where the ocean acidification data is generated wherever we need it. So a huge amount of capacity building is required to allow those people who really need to generate and use the data can do so. We need to be in a world where we understand what the data needs are. What ocean acidification information do we need? And how do we go about getting it? We need to live in a world where we are smart with the way in which we observe our oceans. So we don't go measuring biological impacts in one place and uh, ocean acidification impacts in another and pollution in another. We come together to bring our resources together and integrate our observations. So we use the limited resources we have better. We want to live in a world where ocean acidification impacts on the biology of the oceans is understood. We want to live in a world where we can create those predictions of what ocean acidification is going to do to the ocean and to us in a scenario sort of relevant to us in terms of our economics, our health, our well-being, our sustainable life. We want to live in a world where... The public is aware of ocean acidification as an issue. And I'm not suggesting that everybody needs to become an expert on ocean acidification, but everyone needs to have enough information to be able to consider what the implications are of ocean acidification on their lives, on on the way in which they interact with the oceans. And finally, we want to live in a world where decisions are based on sound and robust evidence of ocean acidification. We need to ensure we make better, wiser, more sustainable decisions based on real robust scientific evidence. Now delivering those seven outcomes is not a job for scientists alone. We need the whole ocean community to think about the role they play and how they bring their skills and expertise, and knowledge, and experience into delivering each of those outcomes.
2: Peter, I wonder if I could ask you then, as somebody deeply embedded in the global ocean policy discussion, whether or not you yourself are disappointed at some level with the traction that the ocean is getting within the context of climate discussions, within the context of biodiversity discussions, and also to reflect particularly on whether ocean acidification is now slowly working its way onto that agenda, or whether it's simply not really at this point in time part of that agenda.
3: Generally, I'd say I'm not disappointed. I was very disappointed uh, before SDG 14 came into existence and fought very hard for its existence at the UN. But I think there's been uh, incremental progress every year since then. I heard what Steve said there about seven things that are required, and I agree with every one of those. I guess the big thing is, how does multilateralism deliver on that? What I would say to you is that, first of all, (laughs) multilateralism works. You know, we would all be either dead or comparing our skin cancers if we hadn't done the Montreal Protocol back in 1987, which got rid of chlorofluorocarbon, and that was consensus. You think of the consensus, the multilateral consensus that was achieved last year. Incredible. Last year was a great victory for the ocean. The UNEA decision in Nairobi to negotiate a treaty to control plastic pollution. Underway, work underway. The WTO ministerial meeting, consensus by all 194 countries. But generally, all these meetings that I'm saying, we're talking about everybody on the planet, all 194 countries joining the consensus. So WTO Ministerial, Ending harmful Fisheries Subsidies, the uh, UN Ocean Conference held in Lisbon, the UNFCCC Conference held in Jamal Sheikh, the Bonn Ocean Climate Dialogues. All of these were very positive consensus moments for the ocean. And, of course, the highlight was Montreal, where we agreed on that global biodiversity framework and that target of 30 by 30, protecting 30% of the land and ocean on this planet by over the next seven years. You know, so this was a, a momentous year. And my message is to everybody that multilateralism works. But in my experience, multilateralism works best where you have champions. And what I would say about ocean acidification and answer your question, Charlie, is that one of the disappointing areas of SDG 14 for me, as I said, is ocean acidification, SDG 14.3. What would be really useful at this time, with seven years to run, is if a couple of champions would emerge to form a high-ambition coalition for SDG 14.3. In other words, to lead the international charge, to get the multilateral processes running uh, smoothly on ocean acidification. And I can think of no country better than Japan to be one of the co-leaders of that. I'm going to Canada tonight, actually and I'll spend a week there at Impact 5, and I'll be suggesting a similar thing to the Canadian ministers that are meeting there. But I leave that as a direct challenge here in (laughs) Japan. You know, why not? Japan has the scientific knowledge. In fact, I think Steve, correct me, Japan was the leader in ocean acidification research a decade or so ago. So I'd really encourage you to, to think about that, to to pressure your government on that, because there is no doubt that multilateralism does work and it works best where you've got some champions to lead the process. Well, that nexus that you mentioned is worryingly
2: evident, I think, in COP28. (laughs) Um, But uh, let's leave that for a moment. If I can come back to this question of how we approach the problem from a solution's point of view and... Peter's suggestion, which I think is a really interesting one, that potentially here in Japan there is already leadership around the science in the ocean and in ocean acidification particularly. But what else perhaps would be needed, Steve, do you think, to move that science forward into the realm of policy so that we can begin to actually address the issue?
1: Yeah, and again, I completely concur with everything that's said in terms of what does consensus actually mean unless it results in action and change. And one of the targets, Peter's mentioned the global biodiversity framework, one of the targets agreed on, target eight, was an agreement that we would, as countries, we would look to minimize the impacts of climate change and ocean acidifications. And we've seen maps of the, the globe and ocean acidification being a worldwide problem and therefore we start to think, well, it, worldwide problems need worldwide solutions. And there are things that need to be done at a multilateral level. But ocean acidification is a global problem that has local impacts. And what I would urge countries to do is think about what their national ocean acidification action plan looks like. Start thinking about The way in which their country is governed, the decisions they make, the actions they take, and how they are going to structure those in a way that starts combating the problems of ocean acidification.
2: What actually needs to be part of National Ocean Action Acidification Plan?
1: Remember, national plans need to be mindful of the context and the priorities of the nations themselves who are developing those action plans. But in general, you need to understand how bad the problem is and where the problem is worse. So it's important to observe the process of ocean acidification around national waters, have effective and integrated monitoring programs, not just for the chemical changes, but also the biological impacts. You need to ensure that you are changing policy in areas that you might think actually are unrelated to the oceans, but for example, looking at agricultural policy and changing the way in which the use of land then affects the rivers and then the oceans itself, the runoff, the systems are all connected. Think about how you incentivize industries, think about how you protect the environment itself. We've talked about 30 by 30, but Whilst the numbers of protecting 30% of your ocean is one thing, the spirit in which that target was raised is not the same as the number itself. We can all protect 30% of an area, but are you protecting that 30% because it's the easiest 30% to protect or it's the right 30% to protect?
2: Peter, is there something that could be put in place over the course of the next two years that would have a direct impact on the way that the global ocean community, when it comes together in 2025, looks at ocean acidification
3: between now and then? Is there something that we can be doing to do that? Well, I think the ideas that Steve has put forward, plus what I suggested about a high-ambition coalition for SDG 14.3 would both make a big difference, taking things at the national level plus at that global level. And yes, the UN Ocean Conference, the third one will be held in, 2025, that's now approved by the UN General Assembly, co-hosted by Costa Rica and uh, France, and will be held in France. So the big issues like ocean acidification was meeting in President Macron's office last week, and the big issues are what they want to focus on. So you can expect ocean acidification to have a big stage in France at that conference. The point that I would emphasize, and I go back to that first slide that Steve showed, the connectivity, and the origin of the problem and what Malaika was saying about the relationship with the oil industry. I mean, this all basically comes down to one thing, which is stop burning fossil fuels. They are killing our grandchildren. I refer to the road we're on now as the road to hell because it's improved slightly. It was going to over three degrees, according to WMO. It's now at 2.8 degrees that we're taking our grandchildren to. But that's still a road to hell. That's a road of constant fires and failure of agriculture. And it's not something that you want your beloved grandchildren to be consigned to. And that's what we are consigning them to at the moment. 1.5 degrees still is achievable. And that is a world in which they can live good lives. But it relies on us having the gumption now to stop burning fossil fuels. Because when you looked at that first slide that came up there and you saw the 30% and the 90% figure, and what, it all came back to that, those anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions being created by the fossil fuels. And when you saw that effect on what was going on under the ocean, ocean acidification is what's killing coral reefs and ocean warming is what's killing coral reefs. 25% of marine biodiversity rely on coral reefs for existence. And if we're killing off coral reefs, which the IPCC says we will do by the end of the century unless we drastically change our ways, you have to ask the question, you know, could you have a healthy ocean when you take 25% of its biodiversity away by killing off coral reefs? I think the answer is pretty obvious. And then, of course, the corollary is, can you have a healthy planet if you don't have a healthy ocean? And we all know the answer to that. of living space on this planet is in the ocean. Let me segue from what you were just saying and try
2: to sort of spend the last five, six minutes of this conversation on other solutions that are out there for Mm. ocean acidification. There is, of course, a global discussion now underway around carbon dioxide removal. Um, It's a controversial discussion in some respects, but I think it's an important one for us to have. IPCC has said that we cannot simply now rely on carbon mitigation, stopping emissions of carbon dioxide. We have to actually at the same time look at this question of how do we remove carbon from the atmosphere and potentially from the oceans. And what perhaps most importantly are the governance guardrails that we need to put around carbon dioxide removal,
1: I just want to emphasize that we do, we need a multiple approach here. I don't like the word solution because that implies that there is a fix out there Mm. that allows us to carry on and do what we want to do. And we can just apply something and it'll make everything all right and make this problem go away. It, It won't. There are a number of things we can do to make the problem better. And we need to do all of them. There's no magic bullet. There's no single solution. There are things that we can do that we have a very sound scientific understanding for. We understand the risks associated with them, things like habitat protection, things like stopping putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We know what we should do. We need to do it. Then there are other emerging options where we have less scientific knowledge at the moment. And it's imperative that we explore those, but equally We mustn't be panicked into implementing activities that we don't fully understand the risk. I'm not suggesting we need to know every single facet before we act, but we do need to be sure that what we do doesn't make the problem worse. And that's not just about understanding how small scale interventions at local scales will affect the system where you do it. But the ocean is a very complex and connected place. We need to make sure that the actions we take in one place don't have negative implications for other places, both in space, in different places, but also through time. I advocate for strong research and evidence-based decisions on all the options open to us at the moment. But let's not kid ourselves that our simple geological solutions we can apply that will stop us having to make those really difficult decisions about needing to stop CO2 emissions and also the need for us to protect our oceans more thoroughly and operate more sustainably in the marine system.
2: Peter, can I ask you to have the last word on that question? I mean, how do you think globally the governance needs to be
3: set around the risk of potential carbon dioxide removal? Okay, obviously, it's a very big question. And, like thanks for introducing the geoengineering world. Nobody likes to use it. (laughs) But after all, climate change is a result of geoengineering, of us pumping our anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. That's geoengineering on a grand scale. As I said before, multilateralism works. I've seen it in action all the time. I've spent a lot of time in the UN, President of the General Assembly and so on. And consensus is hard to get. It's very hard to get, but it's the best tool we've got and the thing that binds us all when we get it. The right place for discussing these matters of CDR and SRM is in the multilateral context, not necessarily in the General Assembly of the United Nations. We have other fora like UNFCCC, the CBD COPS, if I think of the London Convention, there are various international fora that we have where these can be progressed. But we do need that multilateral discussion. Because CDR, which is carbon dioxide removal, or SRM, which is solar ray modification, these are things which an individual, a very wealthy individual, or a corporation, or a desperate country, can do now. There's no law against somebody going up into space and spraying aerosols through the atmosphere. But it's going to affect all of us. The transboundary aspect of putting things in space is... It's going to affect everybody. So this is why I say the multilateral setting is the right place. And there's been a reticence to have this multilateral discussion in the past because people are worried that it will take away the ambition for mitigation work. In other words, if we can get CDR or SIM working, we can carry on burning our fossil fuels and just soak up the CO2 that way. We don't want that, obviously. But that should not stop us having the discussion amongst ourselves, all nations, on how we're going to govern this, if we're going to do it. And IPCC says we have to do it. But how are we going to govern it? That's what's lacking at the moment, that discussion. Some sort of recommendation that that discussion gets underway in meaningful ways in, in multiple international fora.
2: Peter, thank you for those, for that wise call, I think, for consensus building globally around what is quite a controversial issue. But, Something that we need to explore. The other thing I think that's taken away, and you mentioned this um, as well, Peter, and that is we all need to get working on our national ocean acidification action plans. I mean, no country yet, a few states in the United States have action plans, but no countries seem to have fully fledged action plans in place. And it does strike me that Japan is in a tremendously good position to explore how this could be put in place before the United Nations Ocean Conference in 2025, perhaps just as a throwing out a potential deadline. Fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. And Steve Whittacombe, Peter Thompson, and the like of Thank you very much.
0: Stay tuned and subscribe to this channel for more content from Back to Blue, an initiative of Economist Impact and the Netbun Foundation. A zero-pollution ocean will only be possible if policymakers, business leaders, and investors have access to sufficient evidence to evaluate the scope, scale, and impact of marine pollution and to take action. Back to Blue is calling for you to join the conversation about how to spearhead a coordinated global response to marine pollution, and we want to hear your ideas on how to close the marine pollution data gap. Share your thoughts with us on backtoblueinitiative.com or visit the link in the show notes.